Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Magic Flute. Uh, this is a great evening. First of all, today is the 200th birthday of the Barber of Seville, which was premiered in Rome exactly 200 years ago tonight. So a good hand, please, for Rossini. And without, without Mozart, there would have been no Rossini. In fact, it was his, he was his favorite composer, and I don't blame him. Um, how many of you have seen The Magic Flute before? Okay, how many of you have seen this production of The Magic Flute before? A lot of you came back. Okay, that's a good sign. Okay, and are some of you uh, hearing The Magic Flute or seeing it for the first time? Excellent, okay. I hope to change your lives tonight with this, with this performance. Uh, this is an opera which is beloved by the entire world. It, is a po it, is, it has been popular. It has really never left the stage, really, since it was first performed uh, in 1791. As you may know, Mozart uh, was born in 1756. You did know that, didn't you? And 1791, he died. He met, the Magic Flute is his last completed major work. Um, he wrote it for a uh, popular theater. He did not write it for the court. He did not write it for the emperor. Um, he wrote it for, uh, with a man named Emanuel Schikaneder. Emanuel Schikaneder was, um, you know, he's one of those theaters, very popular with all sorts of, he was known for elaborate contraptions and very fancy, um, very fancy productions, but they were for the populace. They were not for the royalty. And he always had a starring role, and he wanted a starring role in this, so he wrote the libretto together with Mozart so that he could play the role of Papageno, because he liked to be funny, uh, and presumably he was. Now, the premiere uh, took place on the 30th of September, several weeks after the premiere of Mozart's penultimate opera, La Clemenza di Tito, The Clemency of Tito, which was premiered in the first week of September. He wrote these two works simultaneously, and they could not be more different from one another. The Clemency, La Clemenza di Tito is written in Italian. It is so-called opera seria. It follows all of the formula uh, of the respected traditions. The Magic Flute does nothing like that. It is not even an opera. It is called a Zingspiel. What is a Zingspiel? It comes from German word zingen, to sing, obviously, and spielen, to play. And so it was a play with music, or put the other way around, it was, uh, uh, it was singing with dialogues. In fact, uh, the dialogues made up 55% of the written text. You have never seen, even those who have seen many magic flutes, you have never seen a magic flute where they recited the whole text. I hope. <laughs> we do all we can usually to cut it, to keep it short. Um, and in fact, tonight you're going to see a very different type of pr production. It has no dialogues at all. Now, how is this production different from other productions? This is made by a man named Barry Kosky. Um, he is the general director of the uh, Komische Oper, that's comic opera in Berlin. Uh, he is Australian. Um, he has made a production that is based on the, uh, well, sort of a, inspired, I should say, by the silent films. And so you will see the characters of the Magic Flute interacting with silent, with films and silent films and sort of sometimes psychedelic 1960s art, the whole lot. This is not normal. So if you're seeing the Magic Flute for the first time, don't think that this is what the Magic Flute usually do, looks like. It doesn't. Uh, but the Magic Flute is a fairy tale, and therefore it lends itself to many different types of productions, and it tolerates many different types of production. In fact, it tolerates all forms of production except for bad ones. So this is one production. 
And this production is going to do away with the dialogue. Now, this Singspiel form was not new to Mozart. He wrote another one several years, well, about a decade earlier, which is a fantastic opera, which you may never have seen. It's called The Abduction from the Seraglio. You're going to see it next year, and you're going to like it as much as you like the magic flute. That is a Zingspiel. That means that there are dialogues. It is funny, and at the same time, like most operas of Mozart, it is funny and sublime at the same time. And so is this one. This one uh, is extremely witty, extremely funny, very amusing, but it is also touching and moving and serious also, all of that put together. And it was the particular genius of Mozart that he was able to do all of that uh, at once. Uh, Mozart died in December. He was working on uh, his requiem, his, not his requiem, but the requiem, and he died on de December the 5th. He was not to complete that requiem. So consequently, this is the last great uh, major work that he wrote. And as such, people have um, back-engineered this to be his last testament. In other words, people say, yes, this is his last testament to humanity. And it is a sort of a testament. It is a humanistic uh, uh, message of brotherly love and uh, uh, intellectual, uh, the, the, the importance of reason, the importance of, uh, the, the, of all human beings having dignity. Um, why, where did he get all that? Well, first of all, he was a man born with, who understood all of those things. Um, but he was also a, a member of a, uh, of a lodge, and that was a lodge that they call Freemasons. Now, the Freemasons have been present in history uh, for several hundred years now. They are, to this day, um, a very significant, uh, a very significant, uh, you, you can't call it a religion, but you can call it a secular, spiritual, intellectual society. It is also a secret society uh, because there are many uh, parts of it, uh, initiation rites, uh, various symbols or things which are not allowed to be sh uh, shared with people who are not Freemasons. Um, th those of you uh, out there who are not Freemasons, you're in the same boat I am. I can only guess and I can read books and try to figure out because there are symbols apparently all over the opera tonight, Magic Flute, that are Masonic symbols. Now, please forgive me if you are a Freemason out there. Don't reveal yourself. Forgive me for anything I say that's stupid or ignorant because I don't know more than, than I'm able to read. But this idea that it was his last um, testament, something we do with last pieces. We suddenly think, oh yeah, the composer knew he or she was dying and they wanted to have some last word and they did it. Um, it's usually not the case. Uh, they usually did not write with the full knowledge that it was their last word. So I wrote a little article. You can find it in your program, or you can find the short, uh, the short form in your program. You can find the long form um, on the internet. Um, I'm going to just to read you the beginning of it, um, and then uh, uh, you can read, the, read yourself to sleep tonight after the performance by reading the rest of it. Uh, Mozart's The Magic Flute is amongst the world's most popular and beloved operas, written by one of its most adored composers. A pseudo-fairy tale, its invented mythology appeals to children and adults, amateurs and professional musicians, philosophers and writers, casual opera-goers, and die-hard fans. It is immediately accessible to children, yet sufficiently profound and sophisticated to have commanded the attention of great thinkers and musicians now for more than two centuries. Beethoven loved it and considered it Mozart's greatest work. Many writers and musicologists considered it his last testament. Though he wrote another major opera at the same time, as I mentioned, La Clemenza di Tito, which he completed, as well as a requiem left 
uh, incomplete. In the few months that remained in his life, the notion um, that he was consciously leaving posterity a work that constituted a final moral statement has been around from shortly after his death. Uh, the passage of time has further elaborated this perception. But has this view been reverse engineered, as is often uh, the case uh, with composers' final works? Uh, I'm going to leave you there. But then the rest of the article, I write seven paragraphs of questions and pro provide you with very, very tentative half answers to those questions. Uh, it is a fascinating work, but most of all, it's fun. And this production is a lot of fun. Now, um, half mythology, half fairy tale. Uh, it takes strands from the popular theater. Shikinator had already written a piece that had some of these elements. They took them from that element. But you have a story of good and evil, all right? like most fairy tales. Who is evil? The queen of the night. Most people love the Queen of the Night's arias, and they know them. I've heard them at Nordstrom's being played at times. Uh, yeah. The Queen of the Night's arias are probably now the best-known pieces from, from the Magic Flute. Um, however, we, she is wicked. All right? So she's bad. Um, she has three ladies who work for her. They look nice. They're bad. All right? um, and she has a daughter who looks very nice. She's very beautiful, and she is good. She is no longer with her mother because she was uh, taken away from her mother by a man whom we are going to be told is bad. That's Zarastro, but he's really good. So when the opera starts, you are going to think that the queen of the night is good and Zarastro is bad. But in the course of time, that is going to be reversed. Now, this has led a lot of, of musicologists and writers to think that uh, Mozart and Schikaneder changed the story midway and they changed their mind, but they didn't bother to clean up the beginning. Uh, that's a viewpoint. I don't agree with it because it makes perfect sense. We are going to see the opera through the eyes of our hero, who's a prince, um, who has wandered onto the uh, scenery and the set in a Japanese costume, although he's not Japanese. His name is Tamino, and he's a tenor. So we're going to see it through his eyes, which explains why we are going to have this mistaken notion, because, you know, tenors don't always get it right away. It takes them a little... <laughs> takes them a little time. So he's going to believe what the Queen of the Night tells him, and he is going to go off on a rescue mission like many heroes do in fairy tales. He's going to go to the temple uh, or the castle, because uh, we don't know it's a temple. He's going to go to the castle, and he's going to break his way in there. He's going to find Pamina, the daughter of the Queen of the Night. He's going to rescue her. He's going to bring her back to her mother, and in, in honor of that, he's going to be able to marry her. So we've got Bad over here, Queen of the Night, with her good daughter and her bad three ladies. We've got Zarastro over on this side. He's good. Um, he has a, a whole, actually, temple of priests, uh, people uh, there. Uh, there are three of them, actually. We're only going to meet one of them, and we're not going to see him in this production. He's called the Speaker. He is an older man. He's very wise. And he's going to talk to Tamino and try to um, challenge him uh, to uh, not come into the temple and try to uh, steal Pamina and kill Sarastro. Uh, there is also a, um, a not very nice character, half comic, half um, uh, half wicked. His name is Monas Dutos. He is a Moorish slave. This will give you an idea of the racist type of society that Vienna was, that you could put a, a, a black man from the north of Africa on the stage and everybody would find that either funny or he was to be wicked. Um, that is not Mozart, that is the entire society.
Uh, Monocytos will eventually leave the services of Zarastro and he will go over to the enemy camp and he will, um, he will go to the Queen of the Night and he, together with the Queen of the Night, the three ladies will all be destroyed at the end. Why? Because they're bad and this is a fairy tale and the bad must be punished. Um, so you've met just about everybody except for Papageno. Papageno is a bird catcher. He works in the realm of the Queen of the Night. He is good. He's not just good, he's very, very good. He has a wonderful heart. He's a simple man. His job is to catch birds and to sell them or in, to get part of them so that he can eat and drink. Um, he doesn't have any ambitions in life except to find a girlfriend, a good glass of wine, and a nice meal. Now, he's doing fine with the glass of wine and the meal, but he can't get anybody to love him. Um, in the end, he's going to get his girlfriend. They're going to marry and make a lot of children, they tell us. And her name is Papagena, and she looks somewhat like Papageno. That's, her, um, that's, that's his reward. Um, there are th um, the number three is very important, um, apparently, for, uh, for the Freemasons. So you're going to see three as a symbol all over the opera. There are three ladies, as I mentioned, of the Queen of the Night. There are three young spirits, little boys. They are going to give Tamino the magic flute, which has magical, obviously, qualities. You play the flute and things happen. You're in trouble, you play the flute. You've lost somebody, you play the flute, you find them. The magic flute is there to help a hero in need. Uh, Papageno wants something too, so he gets a magic glockenspiel. Fortunately, Schikanator and Mozart agreed to call this opera the Magic Flute, because you can imagine the Magic Glockenspiel might not have gone so well um, in, in history. Um, so um, Goethe thought so much of this opera that he decided to write a sequel. Um, he stopped because it didn't work out very well. But um, as I mentioned, Beethoven thought so highly of it that he, in fact, wrote his one opera, which is really a zingspiel. It's music with dialogues. So um, that's pretty much how you, uh, how you can orientate yourself as how important this opera is. Um, now there's an important book. It's by a man named Jacques Chailly. He wrote the, of the Magic Flute, the Masonic Opera, and has a lot of uh, theories and information about the Masonic background. But he opens up with a very humorous uh, introduction. He says, an opera girl cannot help being puzzled at a performance of Mozart's masterpiece. So those of you who are seeing it for the first time, you might be puzzled. A jumpy, ill-assorted story in which the sequence of situations is not guided by any apparent logic puts him off as much as the marvelous variety of the incomparable score enchants him. In other words, great music, nonsense story. How many times have we heard that about operas? Okay. The first act is a fairy tale, continues as a comedy, and ends in a philosophic tirade. The second act is even less comprehensible. We watch the chief protagonist being subjected to unexplained trials of astonishing arbitrariness, and then suddenly learn that they have earned the right to places of honor in the glory of Isis and Osiris. Who is Isis? Who are Isis and Osiris? They are two, uh, uh, they are two gods of the Zoroastrian Egyptian line, and they are actually brother and sister, and also man and wife. Okay? Uh, a young prince in a Japanese costume behaves in a cowardly way when faced by a serpent, which three ladies kill for him. And that exploit entitles, entitles him to be selected by the queen to deliver her imprisoned daughter from an evil genius. Upon seeing the girl's portrait, he, he falls in love with her and sets off to free her. But when he reaches the evildoer's stronghold, that's Zarastro, he begs for initiation into a virtue concerning which not a word has ever been whispered to him. 
um, and completely forgets the beauty he has come to win. Then one learns that the evil genius, no less than the high priest of wisdom, and the imbroglio proceeds along those lines to its inexplicable final apotheosis. Confused? All right. You're in, you're in, good, you're in, you're in good shape. Um, to hear the action of Zauberflöte described as a jumble of stupidities still is, a common, uh, is common despite the opposing testimony of Goethe and Mozart himself, um, who recounts, Mozart recounted his scorn when he treated as a, a Papageno a man who spoke that way. In other words, he took Papageno very seriously. Um, Goethe said, it is enough that the crowd should find pleasure in seeing the spectacle. At the same time, its high significance will not escape the initiatives. Goethe also was a Freemason, and he held this, in this, this libretto in as high esteem as he once considered writing a sequel to it. Now, you know, it's also found its way into popular culture in the movies. We're a, we're a town that's all about the movies. Uh, Ingmar Bergman made a, uh, made a film of the Magic Flute in 1975. Kenneth Branagh made one in 2006. Um, I had the fortune to conduct the, uh, the score for that movie. Uh, those are two of them. You know, Mozart also became popularized. 1967, there was a movie called Elvira Madigan. Anybody here old enough to remember Elvira Madigan? Yeah, for 10 years afterwards, every time the Mozart piano concerto in C major was played, it said Elvira Madigan. That way it sold tickets. Um, then uh, uh, P uh, uh, Peter Schaefer, Schaffer wrote the Amadeus, which was originally a play on Broadway, where I saw it first, um, which, was, which is really a study about genius versus mediocrity. Then it was made into a film which became much more about Mozart, and that film um, made its way through the world, 1984, and popularized Mozart even further. Um, the portrait of Mozart in that film is a matter of conjecture, okay? It is not sure that he was like that at all. In fact, it's quite likely that he was not, but it makes a great play and it makes a great story. Uh, and so it is. Um, this is about my eighth outing with this opera. My first encounter was as a 15-year-old. Um, my brother and I and my best friend were three parts of, a, of the dragon at the beginning. And we pursued Tamino until we were cut up in three parts by the three ladies, and each of us wriggled off the stage in a separate direction. Uh, that was the beginning of my love affair with this, uh, with this wonderful opera. Now, let me tell you something about the Masonic, uh, the Masonic elements, all right? I said there are three boys. Uh, every so often we hear there are three concepts that we're supposed to, as Enlightenment people. Now, this is the French Enlightenment. This is two years after the French Revolution. Uh, the three boys stand for standhaft, dulzam, verschwiegen. Steadfast, be steadfast, be tolerant, be discreet. Okay? Uh, the three priests at one said, Tugend, verschwiegenheit, wohltätig. Virtue, discretion, charitable. These are important. The temple in Act 1 has three entrances. Klugheit, Arbeit und Künste. Intelligence, labor, and arts. The woodwind, the woodwind instruments in the orchestra are heavily emphasized because these were instruments that the, uh, the Masons liked to use. The trombones, which have been largely absent from opera in general and Mozart opera specifically, have a large role to play because they too had a role to play in the Masonic lunch. Mostly the trombones were used in church music and they're used in Don Giovanni when Don Giovanni is called upon by the supernatural um, to repent or go to hell. And he, of course, we all know what he happens and the trombones are right there to welcome, well, to push him on his way down to his infernal punishment. Okay, so uh, those are some, uh, some extra, extra things. The most interesting thing, for those of you who are musicians will understand right away why, um, this, the basic tonality, the basic key of this 
opera is E-flat major. Now, Mozart usually has a key, and it, uh, Don Giovanni is uh, D minor and D major, not because he's Don Giovanni, but because that is the key of supernatural uh, events and death and punishment. Um, Cosi Fantuti is in C major, uh, Magic Flu uh, uh, The Marriage of Figaro is in D major. Um, this is in E flat major. It's the only opera he wrote basically in E flat major because um, it has three flats in its key signature. In other words, if you're reading the music, you know those little things that look like that? For those of you who didn't study theory or music or anything, uh, there are sharps which make a note higher and flats which make it lower. There are three flats in this opera and that is not an accident. Those three flats are um, a Masonic symbol. Now, uh, here the overture is going to start in E flat and you're going to hear three chords. Here they are. Listen carefully. You're going to hear three little notes. That's your three notes. Now, you've heard your chords now. Right? Now, uh, one very important writer, Jacques Chailly, who wrote that book, thinks that five is also very important. Uh, five is apparently associated with uh, the female um, in Masonic. Um, so, this is a combination of three and five. There's your first chord, right? So, one, listen that there are two chords now. Two, three. Four, five. Is that three and five? Yes, three and five at the same time. Did Mozart mean it? Who knows? All right. Now, he does something extraordinary in the overture. Now, the overture, you know, is a little symphonic piece that you get to listen to before the opera starts. And in the middle of the orchestra, there are your, th are your wind instruments and your trombones, and you heard three chords. Bom, bom, bom. One, two, three. And then you're going to hear them repeated. One, two, three. For a second time. And then you're going to hear a third time. Now, those chords, not in our production tonight, are used a lot in the second act as they gather the, uh, the members of the temple together for solemn rituals and announcements. So you see, you've got three times three in the middle of the overture. So here's the middle, middle of... That's the... part of the overture and sounds like it's going to come to an end. Bump, bump, bump. Three notes. Don't applaud. Three times three. is going to recommence with this 
this music that has to do with the tests and trials of the main, main characters. And it's going to come to a great ending. Bum, 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 three notes. That's the end of the orchestra. Now you may applaud. Okay. Now, here's, now, what is going to happen is Tamino, the tenor, is going to become the symbol of the person who strives, who wishes to be better. He wishes to grow spiritually. He wishes, wishes to grow uh, intellectually. He wants to evolve to, uh, to his maximum. Papageno will be a symbol for somebody who does not want to evolve, who likes being the way he is. He's only interested in wine, and his food and finding his girlfriend. In other words, he is a creature of nature, but he has such a wonderful nature that we all love him. And the more Tamino strives and becomes more evolved, and the more that Papageno stays way behind him, the more we actually love Papageno. Why is that? Because there's a Papageno in all of us. And in fact, there was a big Papageno in Mozart. Mozart was simultaneously Tamino, the striver, the genius, the humanitarian, and Papageno, who just liked to enjoy himself. And in fact, all of us are a combination of Tamino and Papageno. So, here he is, running away from the dragon. You will notice, once again, number three. Two, three. One, two, three. It's all over the place. Remember that the Freemasons were at the avant-garde of the Progressive Enlightenment. They were, they were suspect by the Catholic Church, by the Austrian government. He's about to faint from fear, and the three ladies appear, and they kill the dragon, and they say triumph, triumph. One, three notes, three times three. Repeat it. One, two, three, and now a new motive. Listen to the violins. So you hear the violins, boom, 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 and underneath the cellos and basses, boom, boom, boom. It's all over the place. Okay. Now the three ladies take a shine to this young, you know, even they, they, they think, well, I could marry this, this prince and he's beautiful and I would live happily ever after. But of course he's in a faint, he doesn't see them, he doesn't react. Eventually they go back to the Queen of the Night to report what they've found. And we meet Papageno, 
Now, here he is. technical error here. I do not see Papageno. Well, Papageno has a little pipe. You will hear this throughout. He uses this all the time. Now, uh, you have to come back next week. I'll, get it, I'll put it back on the... It fell off the list. Okay, Papageno sings in G major. He has his own key. It's the key of people on the street. Shikinator uh, uh, had a non-operatic voice, so the range of Papageno is very small. The Creed of the Heights Knight sings very high. Uh, Zarastro sings very low. Papageno sings in the middle. So uh, he has this little pipe, and you're going to hear it's going to be his characteristic sound. Five notes. Now, Tamino is in love. He's going to sing a little love song to this portrait. He has seen the picture of Pamina. And he says, this image is enchanting. And you're going to hear one, two, three, those chords, the sonic chords. And you're going to hear them again. One, two, three. Now, three notes in the violins, love. Another three-note motive coming up. Violins. One, two, three. And now here comes the Queen of the Night. That was a great entrance you just made. <laughs> Here she comes. And she talks to young Tamino and she says, Don't tremble, my dear son. And she does a snow job on him now. She, she knows she's like a politician. She knows how to win her case. So, what's she going to do first? The aggrieved mother. I have been chosen personally for grieving. How many mothers have said that? Why? Because my daughter has been stolen from me. And Mozart gives her the key of G minor, which he reserves for people in great, great emotional stress. It's going to come up twice in the second act, once for Pamina, when she thinks that Tamino doesn't love her anymore, and once for Papageno, when he thinks nobody loves him anymore. And we're going to, th we're going to like the Queen of the Night, because she really seems sympathetic. And then she says, I have chosen you. You, you, you are going to fix this situation. Do, do, do. No, she could have said do, meaning you, once. No, she says it three times. Do. She's going to sing very high and very fast, as in this. 
young lady who is singing this for tonight is a member of our Young Artists Program. And I have to say, she stole the show at the opening. I think you will probably agree tonight. Now, then Papageno has been punished for lying because he told Tamino that he killed the dragon, so the three ladies have punished him by padlocking his mouth. This is Papageno trying to say something. Tamino says, well, there's nothing the poor guy could do. I can't do anything but sympathize with you. Then the three ladies come and take the padlock off and they say, never lie again, Papageno. And little, they give them the magic flute, the magic glockenspiel, and they say, off you go to the castle, you're going to find Pamina. Uh, Papageno finds her first, and they have a very sweet little talk with each other because they're both very pure spirits. Uh, and they talk about the beauty of loving and man and wife, and here they are. <laughs> In the key of E flat, three flats, Mann und Weib, und Weib, woman, wife, and Mann, Mann und Weib, und Weib, und Mann, reiten Man and wife, wife and man, uh, uh, come close to the Godhead. In other words, that is, Mozart is, is specifically saying, we don't find our evolution fully by ourselves, within ourselves. We do it in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a couple, in a society. So he is explicitly coming out um, for, uh, not, not marriage so much, but for love, human love, any form of human love that is sincere and full. This is in contrast to the Masonics, the Masonic Lodge, because the Masonic Lodge were uh, more than slightly misogynist. They did not want women in their midst, and you will hear the speaker will say something rude on that subject. You, uh, you may hiss and boo when he says, no, don't do that. Uh, but, but it's out of date. It, we don't accept it today, but it was part of the, uh, part of the uh, environment at the time. Zoroaster will also say something similarly politically unacceptable. But Mozart was not a misogynist. On the contrary, he was always on the woman's side. In fact, throughout his operas, over and over again, he shows the woman to be the most enlightened, most evolved human being. It's the men who have a lot of catching up to do if they ever do it. So uh, he is going to arrange this story in such a way that Tamino, who is going to become the new head of the community through, uh, through going through these tests, he is going to find, he's going to rule not by himself. He's going to be led through the tests by Pamina. So Pamina and Tamino at the end are going to be the couple. And this is in his way, in his very revolutionary, subtle way, Mozart saying that the woman is not, is not only equal, she is perhaps uh, the, the, the leader of the two. Now, um, what happens subsequently is one of the most extraordinary scenes. The, the singing and the melody stops, and a long confrontation called a recitative, you know them from the, from the, uh, the operas, Marriage of Figaro, where there's a harpsichord, but there's no harpsichord in this opera, so uh, 
It's going to be done by the orchestra. Mozart, in the next five minutes, five to six minutes, will create a scene where the, the word and the dramatic situation will define the musical form. This is the beginning of what will happen in the 19th century. This is what Wagner will take and run with this, as will eventually Verdi and the Italians. Uh, this is the idea that the, that the word, the dramatic, the dramatic situation will define what we are, in fact, uh, what kind of music is going to be played. You will see him here three times. He goes to the temple doors and he said, Zurich. They say, go back. He's shocked, he's gonna go again. Another door. Second time, Zurich, get back. There I see another, another door. Maybe I can go there. So instead of trying to bang down the door, he knocks this time, which is the first way he is evolving. You see, he's evolving. He realizes, don't go in with violence. Ask admittance. And this magical moment. This wise old man comes out. What is it that you want, bold young man? What are you doing here in our holy temple? Now, what's going to happen, and you'll follow it in the text when you watch it, watch it um, shortly, that the, uh, the speaker will challenge Tamino, who's come in there ready to bring a sword in and to kill everybody and to take Tamino away. He will challenge him, not with violence, but by asking him questions. In other words, it's the Socratic method. It's the rabbinical method. Ask questions. He keeps asking Tamino questions that he cannot answer. And by, with, every, uh, with every unanswered question, doubt is born. And doubt is born in Tamino. What is the answer? He is about to start to become wise because wisdom starts with doubt. And Mozart and, uh, shows this uh, brilliantly. In this mysterious moment. When will this mystery be over? The speaker tells him, as soon as you come in to us with a friendly hand, in other words, the hand of friendship will lead you. In this magical moment, mysteries are beginning. The mystery is deep and dark, but it's going to be the beginning of his development. Disappear. When will my eyes see the light and mysterious voices, a chorus, come out of Alt soon? Three times. Soon, Alt. Jung, young man, and you hear the trombones softly intoning. You will learn soon or you will never learn. Soon? Soon? You say soon or never? You unseen forces, does Pamina live? And they say, Pamina. 
anxious. Lebet noch. She still lives. That's all he wanted to hear. She lives. I thank you for that. And so what does he do? He plays his flute. Now he's inspired. Now he's Orpheus. He's going to go into the underworld of this temple, find her and lead her out. Orpheus is, of course, the favorite mythological character from the Greeks because he is the musician to us. And then we're going to get a chance to hear Papageno's magic glockenspiel. He's going to stun the slaves who are trying to keep him back and to hold on to Pamina. And they're going to dance off into the distance. That is the magic glockenspiel. Zarastro comes. When we hear those trumpets, we know he's important. When you and I walk into the room, nothing. When Zarastro walks in, trumpets. And the end of the act in a blaze of C major. What happens is that Pamina and Tamino see each other, but they're not allowed to get together because they have to undergo the tests now. Tests of fire, water, but also the test of silence. And they will silently uh, not be able to talk to each other. Papageno will fail every test. Right? Uh, but the first act ends with great triumph. And this is a model for Beethoven. major because C major is the key of light but the opera isn't over so it can't be E flat. E flat's only for the end of the opera. But it sounds just like the Jupiter Symphony for you fans of the Jupiter Symphony. Now two more quick examples. Uh, here is also in C major. This is Monostatos. This is so-called Turkish music. Now, that means it's Turkish. They use that term in Vienna for anything that was exotic, was foreign. But you remember that the, the Ottoman Empire came right up to the doors there. And you're going to get the second aria of the Queen of the Night. Here she is. She's not so nice now. She, she tells her daughter to murder Zarastro. Pamina, of course, is not going to do that. This is when we get to understand the true nature of the Queen of the Night. It's going to end up with a flourish. This is 
uses the key of D minor, which which Mozart uses for the supernatural. It's all over. The tests have been won. The magic flute will lead Pamina and Tamino through the tests. Papageno will play his flute three times. Eventually, Papageno will appear, and he gets a reward for not evolving. He gets Papageno. So he's happy. Tamino and Pamina are happy. Everybody's happy. The queen of the night is destroyed right before the end of this, and everybody rejoices in the key of E-flat. When you uh, are finished tonight, you are going to go out rejoicing in the key of E-flat, and you're going to sleep with it all night long. And I hope all of you really enjoy this as we enjoy doing it for you. because they have understand the humanistic concepts, reason, brother and sisterhood, light, have a great time. Thank you very much for coming.